So what I'd like to focus on this evening, perhaps in some more detail, is really a continuation of what we've been focusing on today, this exploration of the body, mindfulness established within the body, and what, it, uh, what we mean by being embodied. So I'd really like to, um, in a lot of ways, base this talk on a teaching story that many of you are already familiar with, probably most of you are already familiar with, but I actually never make any apologies for repetition. So I want to read you this piece that many of you will know. So when an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, by the way, an untaught worldling is uh, someone basically not ever heard of mindfulness. So when an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, they worry and grieve. They lament, beat their breast, weep, and are distraught. They thus experience two kinds of feeling, a bodily and a mental feeling. It's as if a person were pierced by an arrow, and following that first piercing, they're hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feelings caused by two arrows. But in the case of a well-taught noble disciple, all of you, um, when they are touched by a painful feeling, they will not worry nor grieve and lament. They will not beat their breast and weep, nor will they be distraught. It is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily one, but not a mental feeling. It's as if a person was pierced by an arrow, but was not hit by the second arrow. So this person experienced feelings caused by a single arrow only. Now, I, I feel that this is a really pivotal story or teaching in, in the work and the practice that we're doing here. And as awkward and archaic as the language is, it doesn't actually detract from the simple fact that this story really provides the context and the framework, not only for all forms of insight meditation, but provides the context for all mindfulness-based applications. And it has very profound implications for our own practice, and this is really what we are learning to do in our own practice, is to distinguish between these two arrows. And this is a moment-to-moment -moment practice, developing this capacity to discern the core actualities of every moment of experience. We might say the simple truths of every moment of experience and begin to see and understand where the second arrow comes in, where we begin to add this extra layer of narrative, reactivity, identification, um, and selfing that we superimpose upon the core experience. 
Now, I think what we do begin to discover in our own practice is that every moment we can discern that difference and learn what it is to return to the core actuality, core experience of this moment with kindness and with curiosity rather than being lost in the second arrow, rather than being lost in the reaction or the narrative. Every moment we're learning to do that, we're actually learning the lessons of how to bring emotional and psychological distress to an end. So we're actually learning in that, in that capacity we develop how to bring distress and struggle and suffering to an end. It is a core skill. It's a core skill. It, it's one of the most pivotal skills involved in transforming the landscape of our own hearts and minds. And there is a lot of subtext in that learning because we, we learn not only about how to return and how to come back to the core experience of this moment, but we learn lessons of balance and resilience in doing this. We learn a lot about acceptance and compassion. We learn a lot about kindness and about letting go. In fact, many of the lessons of insight, the lessons of freedom, are learned within this particular skill and capacity that we develop in the practice. Now, if you just kind of reflect upon your experience today and just consider where most of your attention has been drawn, where most of your attention has been invested. And of course, a retreat experience is not that different than the rest of our life. But we see, yes, part of our attention is drawn to, to core experience, isn't it? There's sounds, there's, there's sights, there's body sensations, you know, there's um, taste, there's touch. But a lot of our attention is often engaged in and really drawn into the second arrow. This is often where we spend our time. It's often where we dwell. It's often where we give a lot of energy and a lot of preoccupation. And we see that it's in the, the second arrow, our reaction to the core experience, that this is where our, our psychological and our emotional worlds are, are actually formed. It's where we start to form our views of ourself and our views of the world and our views of, of other people. And it's where the attention is drawn. So the invitation, I think, of this practice is, is not at all to be dismissive or judgmental of the second arrow, but it's learning that the attention that can get so unhelpfully drawn into that second arrow in terms of building narrative, 
that that very same attention and capacity for attention can be directed in a much more skillful and much more helpful and much more liberating way um, and a much more compassionate way. So I want to look at these, these two areas of experience, what I've been referring to as the two arrows, and to look at them a little bit separately. So let's look at what the first arrow is. Because the first arrow embraces actually all our core experience. I think the experiences that come was simply with being an embodied human being. It's an arrow that weaves its way through all of our lives, and none of us are exempt. So the first dart, or the first arrow, I think, describes a pervasive and unavoidable human condition. And I, I tend to refer to this as being the realm of the unarguables. Hmm? The realm of the unarguables, the, the, the non-negotiables. That which we cannot argue with in this life. And they're universal. They're not personal. They're not my unarguables or your unarguables. There is something incredibly universal about these core experiences that really connects us all. It really places us in the family of human beings. Now, we could, I want to draw up, you know, really quite a short list. There's a much longer list, but I want to draw up a really short list of some of this core experience that we cannot argue with, but in the realm of the first arrow. The first of these is, is our mortality, that we will all die. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know it's not negotiable even though sometimes we pretend otherwise. It is the outcome of being born. And we do know this on one level. We know our mortality. We know that there is an ending to this life. And it's true of everyone that we see and know and everything that we see and know. Those that we love and those that we hate and those that we don't know. What we do know is that neither our love and our attachment or our dislike or our rejection makes any difference at all to this unarguable. We live within a body. We are an embodied being. As a body, we know youth. We know times of health. We know times of energy. We know times of vitality. And yet, unarguably, we all age. You may have noticed this, some of you. I have noticed it. And each one of us in our life, no matter what our age is right now, no matter what, how our body is right now, each one of us in our life is going to be asked to find the ways to respond to this inevitable process of living within a body. And sometimes I think living within a body it has moments of enormous joy, celebration, but it's also a process of an ongoing lessons in loss. Loss of youth, loss of capacity, loss of changing appearances, 
You know, I remember so clearly one, one time, some time ago, actually too long ago, waking up in the morning and, and realizing that what had been possible for me like five years ago or ten years ago was actually not within any longer the realm of possibility, that my days, that my days of staying up all night partying, um, getting three hours sleep, and then going out into the world in the morning all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, they were gone. <laughs> they were gone. They're just gone. They're not coming back. It's not like they have a temporary absence. They are actually gone. And, you know, my definition of aging is that the, the t periods of time when everything works well at the same time together, they get shorter and shorter. You know, and this is a, an unarguable, it isn't, we're all asked to meet, whether you're asked to meet, you know, times and the great challenge of chronic illness, or, or just the ongoing niggle, you know, it's like to wake up in the morning and the hips slightly stiffer, you know, your back's kind of not quite right, or you know, it's a bit of a pain over there, you know, it's the ongoing symphony of the niggles. And we're asked to embrace this. This is, this is an unarguable in our life. It's not bad news. It's not good news. It is simply the way it is. Now the second, so the first unarguable has to do with what it means to be an embodied human being and what is asked for us to learn in that process. Because we know it's an unarguable that can be met with a whole lot of different responses. The second unarguable, which is also universal, we're all embraced in the web of this, is the unarguable reality of change. Now this is a place I, I find so intriguing because I never, I've never met a person who intellectually disagrees with impermanence. I've never yet, haven't met anyone yet. In fact, you know, you speak about change and Everybody really nods their head really wisely. You know, we all know this. Of course, of course, everything changes. Hmm? Um, and yet, we don't always know how to live with the implications and the repercussions of change. And here, too, there's many lessons we're asked to learn in grace, in compassion, and again, it's lessons in loss. And if we are wise, we learn lessons of letting go and lessons of ease. Because to embrace this unarguable is to really deeply, experientially, heartfully acknowledge that nothing stands still in this life. That there is no one and there is no thing that we can keep, that is graspable, that we can hold on to, that will stay the same, not the lovely, not the terrible. And for me, this is a vast, it's a vast unarguable. We see we have a very, you know, this is not an emotionally neutral place for us. You know, of course, at times when we really welcome impermanence, don't we? Especially when it benefits us, you know. And the ending of a root canal, we're so happy about impermanence, you know. Difficult neighbor moves away, and yes, you know, I'm a permanence advocate, you know. Um, and yet often we don't. 
And what we actually see is, is that our second arrow of wanting or not wanting, liking or disliking, doesn't make any difference at all to the unarguable nature of this. Now, we could all have, you know, great philosophical conversations about impermanence. But the real question is, is do we live an embodied understanding of that in our life? And of course, this is what this practice, if we really treasure peace, if we treasure clarity, if we treasure equanimity, if we treasure balance, it's about meeting our lives, isn't it? It's about meeting our lives as they are and not as they should be. In this fleeting world of sights and sounds and thoughts and people and sensations and emotions that are coming and going, arising and passing, what we do start to see in this practice is that our perception of stability is actually only a perception. And we realize that there is very little amongst this ever-changing landscape that we're actually in charge of. Have you noticed that? How many of your sensations today did you order in? How many of your thoughts today did you select and choose? How many of your experiences today were the ones that were on your menu? We start to realize how very little we are in charge or control of. We can't determine that the sun, moments of sun we enjoyed today will return tomorrow. We can't legislate that other people will change only in the ways that we want them to change. We can't determine that our computer will never break down again and that from here on in, we're only ever going to have pleasant experiences and sights and sounds and, and sensations. We stand on shifting sands. This can be very terrifying for a lot of people. And actually most of human endeavor, much of human endeavor, I feel, is directed towards pretending this is not so. Pretending this is not so. Recently I was speaking with someone who... Uh, whose partner had been in a terrible accident and nearly died. And they said to me, it's so frightening to think you could lose everything you love in a single moment. And I said, but it has always been this way. It has always been this way. We just want not to see it. And we're too part of those shifting sands. Now, the third unarguable, I think, that we're all asked to experience is, is this whole domain of, of disappointment. I find this very interesting. I often think of the, the Buddha Siddhartha. Siddhartha, as the teaching story goes, before became a Buddha, was actually a very disappointed young man. You know, because by, by, by all the stories, you know, was provided with a life of as much ease as could be in India at that time, status, position, comfort, and suddenly came to realize it didn't protect him from the unarguables. So it was a start of a journey, and I think all of us are asked to embrace our own measure of disappointment, that, 
Times people don't turn out the way we want them to be. We lose people we love, or they change in ways that is hard to accept. None of us, I don't think, have been entirely successful in defending ourselves against loss or pain. Sometimes we get what we want, and sometimes we certainly don't. Our expectations may be disappointed, and no matter how much other people love us, no one outside of ourselves really is ever going to be entirely successful in fixing things for us, in making us happy. A disappointment, I think, can be seen as bad or bad news. But in my understanding, it's actually what really often brings people to this path, and it often what brings people into the world of mindfulness, actually, begins people questioning and investigating because they strategize forever of ways to argue with the unarguables unsuccessfully and, and suddenly can come to that point where, where there's a kind of willingness almost to not to succumb to passivity at all, but the willingness to surrender the endless dedication to trying to fix everything and make everything perfect and believe everything has a solution if we just try hard enough. And actually begin actually the, to, to look at some of the deeper questions, I think, about how, how do we live with this uncertain life? How do we live with, with change? How do we live with loss? How do we live with uncertainty? How do we live with unpredictability? And, and I think for many people, this is actually the beginning of their own waking up and, and actually beginning to, to develop the resources inwardly to meet the life that doesn't go away and to meet the unarguables that don't go away. Now, I think sometimes through, through the eyes of, of fear or through the eyes of anxiety or aversion, the unarguables look kind of bleak and depressing. But I think they're not. I think the bleakness and the depression is part of the second arrow. I think looked at through the eyes of, of compassion and looked at through the eyes of mindfulness, we see actually this is what really invites us to, to investigate, to, to wake up. It's not about good and bad. Now, when we really look at this whole world of change, uncertainty, the, the vulnerability of the body, the vulnerability of our lives, and when we really see how little we're in control of, what we also begin to see is actually, you know, there's that shift we make where we see it's not our fault. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I see people who are ill and they're blaming themselves. You know, I see people who are, uh, you know, caught in great uncertainties and blaming themselves, thinking, I just didn't try hard enough, or I just wasn't good enough, or I just need to strive a little bit more, and then I'll be more successful in being in control. But actually we see that the unarguables are not a 
because we've made bad choices or because we haven't done things right or because we're not good enough. These are universal realities. And there's, there is, I think, for me, there's always been something quite humbling about that. You know, to, to be able to not feel that I need to be mistress of the universe. But then this brings us, I think, to looking at the second arrow. And there's quite a few of those winging our way in their day, isn't there? You know, if you notice how often we're sitting or walking and it's almost like a, here comes the arrows, you know. They're just winging through our experience. Now, the Buddha used, I think, a really important word that many of you by this point are familiar with to describe both the first arrow and the second arrow. And the all-inclusive word that describes this is this word dukkha. Now, it's entirely impossible to translate this simply into English, and sometimes it's translated so badly as suffering. And anyone who's ever translated dukkha's suffering, please eradicate that word from your vocabulary. It's much more this, this vast realm of dis-ease. Dis-ease. So look at, dukkha includes the first, the first arrow, you know? Change, unsatisfactoriness, uh, the uncertainty of conditions, mortality, birth, death, all of that comes under this word dukkha. Now, we don't have a lot of choices about the first arrow. You know, this is, it's, it's ethically neutral. This is what comes with life. But more importantly, and this is where the whole path of mindfulness and the whole path of meditative contemplation comes in, is concerned with really the second arrow. Because this describes a world of psychological and emotional distress that is constructed out of confusion and that is optional. And when we're practicing and when we're teaching many of you people the whole path of, of, of mindfulness in its deepest ways, we're actually learning to calm down that second arrow and to begin to understand the ways in which, in a sense, we're the architects of the emotional and psychological worlds we live in and that there are choices. There are skillful choices. The first arrow, indeed, is, it can be painful and you know, frequently is painful. But it's within this second arrow that real torment is actually born. Now, I think when we feel helpless, uh, the only avenue I think we feel we can do, the only approach we feel we can have in relationship to the first arrow is to turn away from it, to somehow try and avoid it. Or, or to pretend it's not there, or, 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 or even judge it. But we don't want to be with it. And that's symptomatic of helplessness, is aversion. You know, that's what we do when we feel helpless. We become aversive. We, we turn away. But we see that the turning away from the first arrow can have some fairly catastrophic consequences 
for our own well-being and actually for the well-being of all of those around us. I mean, avoidance is, is oper- you know, my favorite phrase at the moment, it's operationally ineffective. Mm-hmm. That just because we try to avoid something doesn't mean that life tries to avoid us. And actually it's, it's, it's quite unsuccessful and actually only sets off, as we know, spirals of stress and distress. So the first arrow is the unarguable, the second arrow is much more concerned with our reactions, our narrative. And it is where we place ourselves in a state of argument with the unarguable. I hope you can see that. That's what our reactions do. They place ourselves in a state of argument with the unarguable. So this shouldn't be happening. You know, I don't want this. I don't like this. How do I make this go away? You know, it's not fair. It's unjust. You know, it means I've done something wrong or I'm not good enough. I think we can see pretty clearly what happens when you place yourself in a state of argument with the unarguables. Who do we, what do we think wins? <laughs> usually not our arguments. Um, and, and the effect is profound. Now, the second arrow is what happens actually in the absence of mindfulness, in, in the absence of, of, in the presence of helplessness, but in the absent, absence of a sense of confidence and capacity. We, we see there's some things that are incompatible. You know, try to be mindfully aversive. It's, it's not that easy. You know, try to be mindfully clinging. Hmm? Try to be mindfully reactive. It's, it's like saying, try to tie your shoelaces habitually and mindfully at the same time. It, it doesn't really work. These are not compatible. So what we actually see is, is the work of mindfulness, as we all know, is to begin to step out of the second arrow, which is actually so habitual. Now, as the Buddha put it very clearly, I think, there are ways, unskillful ways, of reacting to the first arrow. And, and you know, we're, we're well familiar with that landscape of, of aversion, of blame, of despair, of guilt. We're well, well familiar with that landscape. And we also become very aware that none of this repertoire of reactions eases pain, but actually they're painful in themselves, and they compound pain. So we don't always know, but we're learning what it means to bring a wise and skillful, kind, compassionate attention to all of the moments of loss, the moments of illness, the moments of pain, the moments of unwelcome change. We're learning to bring a more skillful way into those moments, perhaps, when our world may crumble instead of turning away. Because we, we actually see this is, this is almost like the, the, the doorways, aren't they? They're like doorways. We, we meet the unarguables, and it's like you can go through that doorway or you can go through this other doorway. 
You know, and one doorway that's so easy to go through is the doorway of despair or rumination um, or feeling like we, we just need to endure this or find fault or fix it. And if none of these avenues work, we just try to distract ourselves. It, we, you may have noticed it today. You know, someone doesn't return your smile in the hallway, you know. We can spend the next two hours trying to figure out why, you know, and what we did wrong, you know, and, and perhaps come to the conclusion of how unlovable we are. It was actually an unreturned smile. We have no idea why. But we see how, how persistent those second arrows are. But what we're learning, of course, is to walk down another path. To learn, we can stop, we can, we can breathe out, we can pause. We can know and acknowledge that this very pain, which seems to so threaten at times to destroy us, is also the ground upon which we learn the deepest lessons of compassion, acceptance, kindness, and to free ourselves from that second dart. I would almost say that the, the path of mindfulness begins in the moments when we're able to pause in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of uncertainty, and our willingness to turn towards those moments and to know it is as it is. Now, that's not a statement of passivity. It's not a statement of despair. I think it's much more of a profession of our willingness to actually stand in the midst of our lives and to embrace the whole of our life as it is. I think of it as a kind of radical acceptance. It is as it is. I don't know how many times you, I know for many times in my life, you know, and I live like you do in comp, you know, incredibly complex family situations, particularly birth family situations, and it can be so painful to look at somebody you care about suffering and know that there is nothing you can do to fix it. And it is as it is. That doesn't in any way stop that capacity to, to care, to try to protect, to, to, to love and to treasure but at the same time to know it is as it is. In a way, it's almost that capacity to know that that allows that responsiveness of care and compassion rather than the agitation of trying to fix something or make it go away. And that same lesson actually applies to our own experience. You sit with a chronic pain or an illness that doesn't go away, or even a momentary pain, or a thought that you don't want, or, or an emotion that feels hard to be with. How, how, what it is to stand in the midst of this and to know, develop that simple knowing, this is as it is. That's not the end of the story, is it? That's often the beginning of then asking, what does this need? What can be offered? 
how can this be cared for, which is very, very different than how can this be fixed or how can I make this go away. A woman I met once in the midst of a, actually a very long term Ill, painful illness, she once said, the moment that she stopped asking, why is this happening to me? And could say, why would this not happen to me? That that was the moment that her healing actually began. It's something to do with the courage of meeting the moment as it is. Now, at the very heart, as John mentioned this morning, is the very heart of this practice, and the very key first step of mindfulness is actually establishing mindfulness within the body and learning what it means to be a truly embodied human being. It is also the first step, of course, in mindfulness-based applications, isn't it? How many times do you ask people to move their attention up and down in their body to have this most incredible intimacy with their big toe, you know, to actually stay there and stay there and stay there. Why is it given so much attention? Primarily out of the recognition of this primary habit of being disembodied, except, I might say, in moments when the body is so much pain that there's no choice except to be in the body. But then that's often with aversion or with resistance. But how many moments in our life, you know, we're acting as if the body hardly even exists except when it shouts at us. And we're living in the world often of the second arrow, this kind of dissociated way of being. You know, where our body is one place and our mind is marching its way through the world and the body's kind of dragging along after it. Where do we live? Our stories, our narratives, our uh, thoughts about the past, our hopes, our rehearsals about the future, our constructions. And have you noticed today how, how just easy it is to have a story about everything? You know, living in this quite innocent world, you know, that we're, we're constantly t- telling it what it is. You know, oh, there's that really nice tree and that really ugly plant, you know, and, you know, why is that person wearing that, you know, and they should be walking like this, you know. They, they, you never come across that tea constant comment. There's a tea called constant comment, and I think of the person who actually came up with that label. But it's, it's this kind of commentary, this commentary about always trying to fix things in place, and we barely notice the body that continues to sit, to walk, to breathe, to feel, always a present tense experience. And John mentioned this this morning. This is a great gift of mindfulness of the body, is returning to this present tense experience. The body is not experienced in this moment. It's childhood broken leg or it's toothache of next year. It's experiencing what can be felt, what can be experienced, the somatic experience of this moment. And we learn to come back to this, 
And in many ways, the primary lessons we learn within the body of distinguishing the difference between the core experience of the body and our description of it, or our thoughts and our stories about it. By this giving attention to the body, of course, we're learning to bring the present moment into focus, as it is just now. Not imagining the future, not regretting the past. It's a primary lesson of learning to be with what is. It's a primary lesson of learning to be with, it, with what is. And it's also a lesson of willingness, isn't it? And I often think of this, how much this is part of mindfulness, is developing this willingness to turn towards, to, to learn how to let go of our imagining, our regrets, our speculation, and to inhabit this body in this moment. And you will have noticed this today. We don't do this just once. We do it a hundred times, sometimes in a single sitting, sometimes in a single walking. We're learning, ah, yes, remembering. Remembering to come back to this body as it is. Now this remembering, you know, it's, it's interesting that remembering is kind of one of the nuances of this word sati that John mentioned, usually translated as mindfulness. It's this question of remembering that is so much a, a, a kind of turnaround of the habit of forgetting, the habit of forgetfulness. And of course, one of the primary areas of forgetfulness is about being in the body, which is also about being in this moment. Sometimes this is such a primary habit. You know, we often don't want to be here. We often just don't want to be. And I, and I see people say this so many times, you know, why would you do this? You know, why would you want to be here? in this body that might hurt or that feels restless, you know, or, or that might be ill. Why would you want to be here? It's, it's, it's better to be elsewhere. It's better to be distracted. It's better to, to kind of dissociate. And actually, but actually the consequence of that, of course, is to live this dissociated life and often a very distressed life. So we're learning in coming back. And I would never underestimate the lessons we learn in coming back to the body. We're learning the lessons of attention rather than inattention. We're learning the lessons of capacity rather than the lessons of fear. We're learning the lessons of wakefulness rather than the lessons of habit. We're learning the lessons of kindness and befriending rather than the habits of aversion. And doing this, it begins to slow down the narrative. We, we start to see narratives being born. We start to see these second arrows being born in terms of fear, or in terms of aversion or frustration. But we bring that same lesson we learned in the body to those narratives. We've learned about seeing a sensation as a sensation. We learn actually also we can see a thought as a thought, a feeling as a feeling, an emotion as an emotion. This is one of the primary lessons. If we go back to the Satipatthana Sutta that John mentioned, 
to know the body as a body, to know feeling as feeling, to know mind as mind. This is very different. What is really being overturned here, I think, is the habit of identification. The habit to say, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. This is me, this is mine, this is who I am. It is very different to know body as body, thought as thought. And I think learning to attend to the messages of the body with sustained attention really requires us to, to step into a mode almost of not knowing the body. You know, usually we know the body through certain eyes of, you know, I like this, I don't like this, I want this experience, I don't want this experience. This is how I am, this is my body, this is what I fear. It's almost a lesson of beginning to not unknow the body, of stepping into a place of a curiosity, a, a, a receptivity, a ground of, of really sensing this felt experience, knowing what, the, what is being felt rather than what should be felt or what we're willing to accept. It is moving into being almost a conscious participant in the unfolding experience of the body. And this is what we begin to know. The body is process. The body's not fixed. The body is not set in stone. The body is a process. Isn't that amazing? Sensations come, go. Sensations we had yesterday are gone. Tomorrows have not arrived. If we look carefully within the body, there is nothing that's actually still. Even it's a different body, apparently, than it was seven years ago. Apparently cells have replaced themselves. And actually, what is what does that do for us in terms of aligning ourselves with process rather than with state or description? It's moving into this kind of fluidity, this curiosity, this receptivity. There's actually kind of free of conclusions. And I think of one of this as a great gift of mindfulness. It's actually to liberate ourselves from living in this world of conclusions where we think we know. I know the body through my conclusions. I know you through my conclusions or my views about you. And I know myself through my conclusions or my views about myself. Now, there's very little sense of possibility within those worlds of conclusions. Mindfulness of the body is asking us to come underneath that world of conclusions and begin to place ourselves into the midst of this world of process in which everything changes and conclusions make no sense. Conclusions make no sense. Assumptions are like, uh, like this prison, like, like this container of putting ourselves in the world, into this world of assumptions in which nothing is ever allowed 
to shift. Nothing is ever allowed to move. As we begin to embody the body more, more fully, more, more clearly, the world of process, I think there's a remarkable sense of capacity that develops within that. You know, you notice you can choose what you pay attention to. I can choose to pay attention to my hand, or to my knee, or to listening, or to feeling. I can choose what I pay attention to. I can choose whether to pay attention to the narrative or simply to notice that is there. And there's a remarkable freedom, I think, in this. How many times we, we almost feel as if that sense of choice is not available to us. You know, how often we, we feel in our assumptions as a kind of life sentence. You know, oh, I'm, I'm just an obsessive person. You know, or, or I'm, I'm just an anxious person. You know, or, or I'm, I'm just an agitated person. And we notice how every time we spin around those particular loops, those narratives, it seems to become more and more true and, and less and less choice within it. Uh, the skill we develop within mindfulness of the body of seeing a sensation as a sensation is exactly the same skill, of course, that's transferred to thought and to emotion. This too is process, this too is change, and the only thing that keeps it fixed is our view, is our view. We're learning actually to liberate that view. Attending to the changing nature of the body which is learning to attend to a changing nature of the mind, is actually moving very much into verb form, rather than, than description or noun form. Ah, sensation's happening. Sadness is happening. Anxiety is happening. Ah, calm is happening. Rather than that next step, which is much more in the second arrow of, I feel terrible. You know, I'm really in pain, or I really hate this. You know, I'm really useless. Ah, emotion is happening. Feeling is happening. Mood is happening. And we're learning, actually, to gradually, gradually, gradually move into that verb form and begin to loosen that tendency towards identification, towards fixing things in place, through our views. And then many of the lessons learned within the body, of course, are only meaningful if they're brought into all dimensions of our experience. And we see the one aspect of this practice is first to illuminate the moment, to shine the light of mindfulness of the moment, to understand the moment, and to learn what it is to actually liberate the moment. And when we're learning to liberate the moment, it's not nothing to do with dismissiveness, it's learning to liberate the moment from that additional layer of that second arrow of clinging, of habit, of reactivity, and to allow this unfolding process to, to be received with, with curiosity and with kindness.
we're learning. I, I think these are so much lessons of the moment. You know, there's so much lessons of the moment. But I think what we really begin to understand in this path is, is really how radical it actually is. Because, uh, you know, liberation, liberating the moment is not some abstract concept. It, it is actually something that is very applied. And we're learning how much, how much the lessons within the body are the lessons of our lives about being able to put down the second, the second arrow, which actually is what allows for the possibilities of kindness, the possibilities of compassion, responsiveness and wakefulness. When we practice over these days and, you know, when you teach, it, it's not as if, you know, we, we start, start within the body and then we're moving on into much more sophisticated and interesting areas of exploration. And I think of the body as being both the kindergarten and the graduate school of mindfulness. And we don't actually move on. We certainly expand the field of our investigation. But this is always our primary anchor, because I think it is where we learn, actually, the, the most important lessons and the most transforming lessons of this path. Okay, so that's as much as I want to go into tonight. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.